As Hazel comes up for the scripture reading, I'd like for us to do what we have been doing each time uh, with the reading of this passage from Matthew chapter 6. If you would, as she begins to read, if you would bow your heads and close your eyes, because this is the prayer of prayers, and we want to recognize it one more time. Today I'll be, I will be reading from Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Pray then in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us from the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Hazel, for that wonderful reading. We've had different age people do the readings, I'm going to be really honest, it's the younger ones whose voices I'm going to remember, and for those of you who are older like me, just, I'm sorry, but I just love the way they read these. Well, this is the final in our series on the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that we pray together, living the Lord's Prayer, and I hope that highlighting this has brought us an even greater love and reverence for this great prayer, every word, like I've said, every phrase has such depth to it. And this final message perhaps magnifies the subtitle more than any others, uh, Living the Lord's Prayer. And this gives us a great opportunity to address something that's quite current. But first, let me open with a story of a man experiencing grace along the journey. His name is Francis Collins. You might have heard of him. He's an American physician and geneticist. He's the author of a book called The Language of God, which I greatly recommend to you. He discovered the genes associated with a number of diseases and led the Human Gen Genome Project. He's now director of the National Institutes of Health. In earlier years, he was an atheist as he worked toward his Ph.D. in physical chemistry at Yale. After he received the Ph.D., Collins decided to get an M.D. as well at UNC, University of North Carolina. I wish they had one last night, but anyway. In his third year of med school, he began having some intense experiences involving the care of patients. As he describes it, what struck me profoundly about my bedside conversations with these good North Carolina people was the spiritual aspect of what many of them were going through. I witnessed numerous cases of individuals whose faith provided them with a strong reassurance of ultimate peace, be it in this world or the next, despite terrible suffering that in most instances they had done nothing to bring on themselves." His most awkward moment was with an older woman suffering daily from an untreatable disease. She asked Dr. Collins what he believed. 
He thought it a fair question. The two of them had discussed many important issues of life and death, and she had shared her own strong Christian beliefs. This brilliant young scientist and physician felt his face flush as he stammered out the words, I'm not really sure. That moment haunted him for days. It so happened that a Methodist minister lived a few houses down from Dr. Collins, so he went down to the minister's house, and he spoke to the minister, and the minister listened and listened and listened to this scientist. And finally, the minister took a book off his shelf. And the name of that book you might know, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Collins read the book, and the Oxford professor began to convince the young scientist that God does exist and that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed God's son. Soon after, as he gazed at a frozen waterfall at the Cascades Mountains, Francis Collins fell to his knees and confessed his belief in God and Christ as his son. Now, why do I begin with that story? Well, it involves an atheist who is transformed in part because he witnessed Christians whose faith kept them peaceful even as they were witnessing their own mortality, even as they were moving closer to what they clearly believed was a reality beyond this current reality. Well, we are dealing with a current reality called coronavirus or COVID-19. Something new, something novel like this could cause some to think about their mortality or at least how we are vulnerable to many symptoms of this broken world. Let's look at the key phrases of this final verse, this final petition of the Lord's Prayer and see how it speaks to this and many other matters. First of all, lead us. Lead us is an interesting word that Jesus uses here. It's not the usual word for lead that means to direct or to go in front. The word Jesus uses means to bring or to carry. It's like a shepherd walking alongside the flock as they make their way through the valley of shadow. It reminds me of the second stanza of the hymn, Savior like a shepherd lead us. We are thine who thou befriend us. Be the garden of our way. Keep thy flock from sin. Defend us. Seek us when we go astray. Notice that the petition is not keep us from temptation and evil. That's impossible. As free people living in a fallen world, we're going to encounter trouble and hardship. That's why the prayer is lead us. That is bring us through. Show us the way. Before we head out the door in the morning to face the workday, before we send our kids off to college or the battlefield, before we have a hard conversation with someone or make a difficult decision, we should pray, lead me, lead me, Lord. That simple prayer assures us that the Lord will not only show us the way, He'll be right there beside us to carry us through. And next, not into temptation. Now, this next phrase is perhaps the most confusing in the whole prayer. Do we really think God would ever lead us into temptation? Of course not. We know that in Scripture, it says that God would never do that. James 1.13 says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. 
God never leads us to evil. He doesn't want us to fall. He wants us to stand. He wants us to do the right thing, the good thing. The whole thing can be resolved very simply with a well-placed comma, lead us not into temptation. A simple pause after the phrase lead us gives us a sense of what Jesus means here. The prayer might be paraphrased in this manner. As we make our way through this difficult and dangerous world, Lord, lead us. Bring us through situations that could lead to our downfall and turn them into opportunities to do the right thing so we can move on to bigger and better things. This leads us right to another important understanding of this phrase. The word translated as temptation can also be translated as test. It's parasmos. Parasmos. Larry, is that good enough? Okay, good. Yeah, I, got the, I got the thumb. Parasmos. It can also mean test. When you test someone, you want them to pass. A good teacher doesn't give a test in hopes that students will fail. The purpose of the test is to prove that they've mastered the material and are ready to move on to bigger and better things. While God will never lead us into temptation, He might take a temptation a solicitation to evil and turn it into a test, an opportunity to prove ourselves. And then we have an opportunity to draw closer to God and strengthen our faith. This past week, a church member here sent to me an interesting article from the Religion News Service. Dr. Jamie Aiton is the founder and executive director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College. The title of the article is, How We Respond to COVID-19 Outbreaks May Depend on What We Want from Religion. Dr. Aiton is an expert in terror management theory. That'd be a lot of fun to study. It's the idea that human beings will go to great lengths to avoid reminders of their own mortality. We do this as a way to manage our anxiety. And this is some of his research in 2014, when cases of Ebola were diagnosed in America, not nearly as much as in other continents, Dr. Aiton and his researchers found that individuals high in what he called extrinsic religiosity, that is, those who engage in religion for personal and social benefits, you know, social security, social climbing, that kind of thing, they were reported more fearful and anxiety-laden Responses. In other words, you know, it was more for them for themselves. And when things came along that could cause anxiety, their anxiety spiked. They saw the opposite effect among participants who scored high in intrinsic religiosity, those motivated by a religious framework who attempt to live out their faith accordingly. These individuals for whom their faith appeared to be more central to their daily life reported significantly less fearful views. The bottom line is this, Americans who have a more authentic, centered, personal, thriving faith can handle diagnosed outbreaks much better. Dr. Aiton says these findings will likely apply to how Americans will respond to COVID-19 outbreak, if that happens. Already there are faith heroes who are living out their intrinsic belief in Jesus during this time of COVID-19. Dr. Molly Marshall is president of Central Baptist Seminary in Kansas City. I think we both had her uh, in seminary in Louisville years before. She goes on a mission trip every year to Myanmar, 
she does that every year, and actually what she does is help support a seminary there, and it's quite courageous if you know anything about that country that she goes there and does that. So she's a courageous person. But last week, she took a flight to Seattle. Now, as you know, Washington State has had the most cases of COVID-19. And then she gets there, and she missed her next flight. So she was there in Washington, and she started to get anxious. She had to stay there for hours. And then she had to take a red-eye flight, red-eye flight excuse me, to Detroit. And the next flight took her to Seoul, South Korea. And that's the sec- I think that's still second to China in diagnosed cases. I believe that's right. And on the flight to Seoul, Dr. Marshall, who was already quite angst-laden, noticed that there was an attendant who kept checking on her. She circled around to check on her several times. And this is the way Dr. Marshall said in an article. She said, the woman kept asking how I was doing, and I told her a bit of my travel challenges and my angst. She said God had placed her here to work so that she could notice God's people and encourage them, like me. And I teared up at her kindness and witness of faith as she offered a prophetic word as if she could peer into my very soul. Sensing that I was burdened about some matters, she firmly said, God has got this. God has got this. Now, when it comes to COVID-19 or any other trial, we need to see that God has got this. And God can move this away from, well, the evil one. And I know we've talked about this before. Somebody can help me with this. What is the Spanish word for devil? Diablo. Diablo. Wow, a lot of the choir. Did did y'all sing Diablo or something? That was great. Diablo. But it actually goes back to the Koine Greek that you find in the New Testament. Uh, It's diabolos. Diabolos, which literally means throw in front of. Uh, Dia means in front of. Bolos means to throw. It's where you get words like ballistic. So it's to throw in front of. You remember uh, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, when Peter was rebuking him. He was saying, get behind me so you can get out of Peter's way because you're keeping Peter from seeing what he needs to see. That's what the devil does. He throws things in front of us to detour us, uh, to try to destroy us, to keep us from seeing things as we need to see them. But that's the thing. Diabolos can throw those things in front of us, but in response, because our God has got this, we can throw Satan aside and get on with serving our God. What might be a temptation and an occasion for fear or failure becomes a test that proves that we are able to stand. When we pray this prayer, we are asking God to lead us through life in such a way that the difficulties we encounter don't undermine our faith, but rather strengthen it. But then we get to deliver us from evil. But deliver us from evil. Let's notice a couple of things here. The prayer isn't keep us from evil, but deliver us from evil. This is not a prayer for immunity from trouble or spiritual attack. The Lord never promises that if we pray enough, bad things won't happen. In fact, the word deliver assumes trouble. Even Jesus faced the worst pain of evil before he prevailed over it when he rose and left the tomb. To deliver someone is to rescue them from danger or to see them through a hard time. Notice that it also says, 
deliver us from evil, not deliver us from harm. This isn't so much about physical safety, it's about spiritual safety. Jesus himself offered a prayer while praying for his disciples before going to the cross. John 17, 15, he prays, My prayer is not that you take them out of this world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Jesus knew that his disciples would suffer on account of him. They would be persecuted, thrown into jail, even put to death. He knew that the forces of evil would try to silence their witness and destroy their faith. So he prayed that as they were challenged, their faith would not fail, that they would be able to stand. And stand they did. When Paul was in prison, he wrote to the Philippians. If you look at Philippians 1:19, he expressed his confidence that through their prayers, all these things will lead to my deliverance. What he meant was that either he would be set free to continue preaching the gospel, or he would be martyred for his faith and by his death inspire others to be more bold in their witness and go on to spend eternity with Christ. Either way, he and God would win. That's deliverance from evil. That's why Jesus says in John 10.10, 10, the thief, that is diabolos, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and to have it for the full. On a September morning 19 years ago, a Christian woman named Lisa Jefferson was working her usual shift as a supervisor at the Verizon Airphone Call Center. A distraught operator handed her a headset and told her that she was talking to a passenger on United Airlines Flight 93. A voice on the other end said, I'm Todd Beamer from Cranberry, New Jersey. Three people have hijacked the plane. Two have taken over the cockpit and are flying the plane. As she was speaking to Todd, Lisa learned what was happening at the World Trade Center. She began to pray even as she listened to the frightened voice on the other end. Todd said to her, if I don't get out of this, will you please tell my wife and family that I love them? Lisa assured him that she would. Then Todd asked her to say the Lord's Prayer with him. Slowly, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, petition by petition, as we do every Sunday, he and Lisa prayed the prayer together. A few moments later, with resolve in his voice, Todd said to her, a few of us are going to jump these guys. And then later on, she heard him say, ready? You remember what he said? Let's roll. Let's roll. Flight 93 soon crashed into a Pennsylvania field. Instead of into our nation's capital, where it would have caused even greater destruction. James 1.12 reads, Blessed is the man who, perse who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Todd Beamer knew how to pray. And when he proud himself facing this trial, he knew what to do. He asked God to lead him, to help him stand. And stand he did. He received the crown of life that day. And in the process, he blessed his wife, his children, and untold numbers of Christ followers who have been inspired by his faith and courage. None of us would want to find ourselves or someone we love thrust into a situation like that. 
But we never know what a day may bring. Whatever may come, we have this prayer, a prayer that invites God to bring us through trials and temptations with our faith intact and His glory increased. There are definitely times when God intervenes to save us from harm and rescues us from danger, no doubt many more times than we are even aware of. It's right to pray for protection when we board an airplane or merge onto a highway or encounter an unknown disease or just walk out the front door into a fallen and unpredictable world. But sometimes the road of life takes us into unexpected trials or heartache or grief. That's why we ask God to lead us, to bring us through in a way that draws us to Him, that brings glory to Him that blesses others, and that makes our lives a powerful witness. Which brings us to what you could call the doxology, the amen, the benediction, and the coda, all wrapped into one. For thine is the kingdom. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. This is the end of what we pray. This is a doxology that is not found in the earliest manuscripts of the Gospels. Clearly, it was not added by Jesus, but by his followers. It was a common practice in the Judaism of that day for a liturgical prayer to be recited by the group. Then the worship leader would offer a final ending. In a way, it's like the benediction I offer at the end of services. It's a final amen that brings, to an, brings it to an appropriate closing. Of course, that is so great about Jesus that the book of Revelation, the very last book in the New Testament, affirms Jesus himself as the Amen. He is the Amen. But another way to look at it is to liken it to a coda. I hope you all know what a coda is, right? All right, the musicians should. A coda in a musical composition. The Oxford English Dictionary defines a coda as a passage of more or less independent character introduced after the completion of the essential parts of a movement so as to form a more definite and satisfactory conclusion. Now we have the gift of a coda that Keith and our musicians will offer. I ask that you listen to the words, listen to the music, and we're simply going to sit back and soak it up. 